starting in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, um, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for your word. Would you help us to honor you, to love you, to live according to the revelation that you've given us, uh, and then to help us to love one another well, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Uh, help us as we come before your word this morning to be faithful, uh, to hate our sin, to love our Savior. God, you are good to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, we finish up our, um, our series on relationships this morning as we, we look at this final uh, passage here on, and, and talk about relating rightly to the church. And so we remember, if you remember, we're all, we started this whole series by talking about how we're called to relationships. None of us are called to be alone. We're all called to community. We're designed uh, for community. And so we come before your before uh, you know the, the end of this this time together to talk about this issue of being part of the body of the necessity and the encouragement that we get from the body the fact that we are called specifically to be here you know we see in this passage this morning that the thing that bonds us together as Christians is our common confession of faith we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is true uh, the earliest Christian confession that we know of is found in in the scripture where Jesus asked Peter a pointed question he says who do you say that I am? There was rumors going around about who Jesus was. Was he Elijah? Was he, you know, these other things. And so Jesus turns to Peter and says, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by confessing, you are the Christ. And so like Peter, we are the people of God who confess and recognize that Christ is the Messiah. That is the glue that holds us together. It binds us not just to the other Christians in this church or even other Christians who are alive at this time, but it binds us uh, as family to everyone who has given themselves to that confession throughout all of history and every time and place, past, present, future. We are one church. We are the body of Christ. We are as much the people of God through our confession as Paul and Peter and Abraham and Moses who trusted in the, the promise of Messiah and, and everyone else throughout history who have confessed that that Jesus is the Christ. We are the people of God collectively. Now, our passage today tells us some of the benefits to being a part of the church. Verse 19 says, you know, therefore brothers, so he's talking to believers, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's gonna talk about what that means. And so he says, you know, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We've been working through Hebrews in Sunday school, and so this morning in chapter 9, we talked about this, the passage kind of leading up uh, to this one in the, in the letter to the Hebrews, um, where he talks about the holy place. 
Uh, the holy place in the tabernacle and the temple represented the presence of God among the people. Um, the place where God's spirit would come and reside. As they moved, for example, as the people of God moved through the wilderness in the Old Testament, they took the tabernacle with them. And so they would set up the tabernacle in the midst of the camp as they sojourned through the wilderness. And so they'd find a resting place. They'd set the tabernacle up, and God's spirit would come and be in the midst of their people there in the most holy place. And so the, the holy place there in the tabernacle and later on in the temple represented the presence of God among his people. So what the writer of Hebrews means here in this passage is that through the blood of Jesus, we have access to the fullness and presence of God in our lives. We have access to be with God. It's not even just that he's in our midst, but that we are in relationship with him. We can now go into his presence. In the tabernacle, there was this great curtain that separated the the outsiders from the insiders, in a sense, uh, representing the place of God. And so only only the high priest could go behind the curtain and make atonement for sins. He represented all the people in that. But when Christ died, uh, that curtain was torn, symbolizing that we now all have access to that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence resides. And so we have access, uh, when Jesus makes atonement for our sins, he does that once for all time, giving us full and unlimited access to the Father for eternity. So he's reminding us of this here because he's teaching us the importance of, of being God's people who have access to the Father. And so this salvation, though, is it's not just judicial in the sense that it's not just that we are declared holy, that we've been made right with God. It's also relational, that when he makes us judicially okay with God, meaning that our sins are paid for, we now have access to the judge, in a sense, because there's, there's nothing hindering us. Our sins have been paid for, our sins have separated us from God. We now have access to God. And so it's not just a judicial access that we get permission to cross this line. It's relational access, meaning that he invites us into a relationship with him, into the depth of relationship with him. It affects our hearts in that sense, and it changes us through the beauty of his grace. John Calvin says that our confidence in faith comes from experiencing the sweetness of God's grace. It's relational in that sense. It's not that God's this distant judge who just declares, you're holy, you're righteous, you have access into eternity. There's a sweetness to God's grace where he invites us and draws us into himself. The Old Old Testament pictures us, uh, the people of God, as like chicks who run under the arms of their mother. You know, birds who live under the arms of the wingspan of their moms. That's the way we are with the Father. He invites us into that relational depth that we have. Charles Spurgeon talks about this in regards to his obedience. And here's what he says. He says, when I, while I regarded God as a tyrant out to get him because of his sin, you know, he says, I thought my sin a trifle. He says, but when I knew him to be my father. So he's saying, when, when, God, when I thought God only cared about taking care of my sins, I, I just, my sins didn't bother me a whole lot. They were just something to be done away with by the cross. But he says, when I understood God to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Do you get that? Do you get the difference? 
There's a relational sweetness that comes when we understand that Christ didn't die just to give us access, but to give us, but to give us relationship with the Father. To give us a Father, not just a God, but a God who is our Father. And so we're now on a path that's identified here as the new and living way. And, that, and so it's a whole new life. We are made new creatures and new relationships. And so everything that we do is now affected by the beauty of the gospel and by this relationship that we have with, with God our Father. The, that vertical relational aspect that we have with him turns over and he says, because I have first loved you, now go love others. And so it becomes a horizontal love for the people around us. It says that path is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We talked about that curtain that separated the most holy place of the temple from the holy place, from where this the regular priest could go versus where the high priest could go. And we talked about how that temple was torn. And he says here that the access came not just through the fact that the, the that physical curtain in the temple was torn, but that Christ's body was given, that his blood was poured out. That the access comes through the work of Jesus on our behalf. That's the point of the cross, to give us this aspect of relationship with God our Father. Christ paid for our sins with his own blood. His own body was given. Christ didn't bring a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And so when he lays his life down, when his life is taken there, uh, when he gives his life to the cross, he is the sacrifice that we need. And we have a great high priest who is over the house of God, he says here. And so Jesus is the one to whom all the priestly ministry pointed. The priest went and made atonement year after year for the sins of the people. Well, Jesus comes and makes atonement one time for the sins of all who trust in him, for the sins of all people. And so we put our faith and trust in Jesus and we get this relationship. He is the high priest over the house of God. And that's where we reside by faith in his home with him and with his people. Because these things are true, we have the privilege of drawing near to Christ. This passage says that we have, um, in verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so he says we have full assurance of faith. We have that confidence that Calvin was talking about that comes from understanding the sweetness of the love of God that's revealed in the work of Christ. And so because God has kept his promises to us, the promises made in the Old Testament that our sins would be atoned for, we, because he has kept that promise through the gift of the Messiah, we have full assurance of faith. We don't have to doubt that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he'll keep us because he guaranteed that with the death of his own son. And then the presence of the Spirit works within us. We're told uh, later on that, I mean, in, in Ephesians, that the, the Spirit that lives within us guarantees our inheritance. And so it's a full assurance of faith. And he says also that our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So we're free to live without fear that our sins will find us out. We are clean. We're made clean by the blood of Jesus. We don't have to shed our blood to be made clean. He has shed his blood to make us clean. And so our bodies are washed with pure water. That is, they're ceremonially clean, indicating that we can approach God in worship. But for us, it's more than just worship. Like I said, he is our father. And so we come to him not just as maybe, you know, fearful subjects who are kind of hesitating to approach the throne of the throne. We are children approaching the lap of our father. 
And so we come to him relationally. And so we are to hold fast to, this con to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. He has kept his promises. And so we, we see his faithfulness historically and we trust him. Uh, you know, we know that all the signs of the Old Testament have been fulfilled with Christ. When Jesus, after his resurrection, was walking down the road to Emmaus with, his, with some of his disciples, as his, uh, them veiled from understanding who he really was, it says he started with basically all the Old Testament and told them how all of those things pointed to him. And so when Jesus comes, he is the fulfillment of all the things that had pointed to him historically. And so he comes and and becomes the reality of all of our hopes and dreams in that sense. And so we have all of this, all of these things are real inside of God-ordained community. Like I said, we started this entire series by noting that God hasn't designed us to be Lone Rangers because we're designed for community. You know, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. None of us are truly alone or called to be alone. And so we come as the people of God. And that's what the rest of this passage is about, that we're called to do life together, encouraging one another along this way. So what does this life together look like? Well, it looks like other-centeredness. If we look here, he says um, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the very next thing he says in verse 25 is, I mean, verse 24 is, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but uh, as is the habit of somebody, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so this life together looks like other-centeredness. It's, it's people constantly looking outside of themselves, considering the needs of others so that we can look around us and stir one another up to love and good works. And so it's an active considering. It's an action. It's a considering that is intended to move into action. And so I don't just look around me and say, okay, there's these needs. I wish somebody would do something about that. No, it's to be considering, looking out around me and say, how can I stir up and love the people around me? Encourage them to love and good deeds. And so we, we do these things. If you turn to Titus 2, let me flip over to Titus 2 real quick. You know, he talks about the, the end result of... I'm going the wrong direction, sorry. We go to Titus 2. He says, you know, this is a verse we've looked at a lot, verse Titus 2.11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to say no to sin, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, saying yes to righteousness, in this present age, as we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's coming back. We're waiting for him. The one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, what? A people. A people. Not individuals, but a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. And so the grace of God comes to work amongst us. It draws us to salvation. It helps us understand that the sacrifice that Christ made was for us to bring us into the most holy place, into the presence of our Father, into relational unity with Him. And then, he says, because of this relational unity, you now are called to love one another and to be zealous for good works. 
encouraging one another in these good works all along the way to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We can't do that if we neglect to meet together. And so he says, uh, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. You can't encourage one another if you're not with people. So once again, we see he's called us and designed us for community. We are called to be the people of God, one people, the church. And in the church, we're to be encouraging one another. And we, we aren't to slack off as time goes by. As the day approaches and Christ is going to return, we should be even more active in encouraging one another. And I think what he's implying there is to some degree, we're to be growing in grace. We're to be maturing in our faith to be sanctified. And as we grow in understanding the love of God for us and our great need of a Savior, that should cause us to not to just rest in those promises, even though we do rest in those promises, but that rest should be an act of rest where it's resting in his promises and then working for the good of those around us. Even more as we see the day approaching, even more as time passes by, even more as we are assured because of what we're learning about God's faithfulness historically that he's going to keep us promised that Christ is going to come. And when Christ comes, we all go to judgment. And with that reality, we look around us and we say, we should be up to what? Love and good deeds. Because the people around us are dependent upon us to, to preach the gospel, to love them well. And even in the church, we're called to love one another even more as the day approaches. And so when Christ returns, his will is that he would find us going above and beyond to love and encourage one another. We're told that when that happens, that the world will take notice and be amazed at the nature of the love that Christians have for one another. That when we sacrificially give to each other, it's so alien to our world that people truly give and truly sacrifice one another that the world would see how we love each other and say, what motivates that? And we say, Jesus, can I tell you about Jesus? Jesus has changed me from being the selfish self-centered egomaniac to being able to actually look at the needs, consider the needs of others, and, and stir them up to love and good deeds. Through my own love and good deeds. It changes everything. The church and, and essentially is the one place in our culture that exists to remind us that to be truly human is not to indulge ourselves, but to die to ourselves. To not look out for number one, but to give ourselves away in love for others. The church is the, a place, the place in our culture that reminds us that to be truly human is to love God and love people and not love ourselves first and primarily. But to die to ourselves and live for the glory of others. The church is also the place that we're called to be a part of because it's at the heart of our walk with God. We're, we're told that, you know, we understand that the importance of word and sacrament and prayer to spiritual growth, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls these things the means of grace. The, the, the reading of the word, particularly the preaching of the word, the sacraments and prayer are the things that cause us to grow in our faith. They're the means of grace that God has ordained. And where do we practice those things? Well, there's a sense in which we can read the word and pray in our own private lives. But the preaching of the word and the sacraments and the prayers of the people that have been talked about are things that come 
to fruition here. They take place in community, in this place where we gather to worship together and we sing and pray and hear the word and come to the table and, and, and see the baptism of the, of the saints. And so we come to all of these things and those are the things that God has ordained to grow us up. And so we want to mature in our faith to be able to love God and love people even more effectively. How does that happen? It happens in this community as we do life together, and particularly as we gather together to worship. And so we come to the table and we come before his word, not alone, but together to remind ourselves that we are designed for community. And it's a community that worships together. When we come to worship, we're, we are sure to do these things. You know, in our private lives, we may go through days or weeks or seasons where we neglect the word, where we neglect prayer. But when we gather together as God's people for a time of worship, we're called and reminded to do these things. And then we do them together. We open our Bibles. We pray. We call out our praises to God. We, we cry out to him for our needs. All of these things happen. And so we, when we gather together as people, we're guaranteed to be called to focus ourselves, heart, mind, and spirit, on these things that are intended to help us grow, to be the people of God. If these are the ways that God normatively communicates his saving and sanctifying grace to us, we would be foolish to neglect worship, to neglect the gift of worship in the community that he has given us in the church. But it goes out from here. We're not just called to gather. You know, we've talked about this before, that in worship, when we come to a worship service, we tend to sit side to side facing forward. It's a reflection of our relationship with God. We come together as his people and we relate to him, but there's not a lot of relational, you know, horizontal relationships between us that take place in this space, maybe before, maybe after. And so we've got to be careful that our involvement in the church isn't just relegated to this space because God has also called us to horizontal relationships with each other. So we need times where we aren't just shoulder to shoulder with people, but we turn and we're face to face with people. We relate to one another, encouraging one another, partly by our presence here and our participation in worship, but more so even as we go, we continue to do life together. We continue to do community together. We continue to be involved in each other's needs and, and we need to, and, our, and our, we're given each other to help one another. And so we can't do that unless at some point we're looking to one another and saying, how can I love and serve you? How can I stir you up to love and good deeds. This is what we are called to as a community, to worship together and to love each other. It isn't an either or. We're called as God's body to do this for one another and with one another. The church exists to remind us that the most important thing in the world is not what we do, but what has been done for us. And so when we gather together as people, even in our personal relationships, as we gather face to face or side to side, the one thing we do is we keep the gospel at the center. We remember that the most important thing in the world is that Christ has already done for us. He has died for us. He has given himself for us. And that only in the light of his work can we truly love and care for others. We're told that we love because he first loved us. We are to be full of love for others because Christ gave himself completely in love for us. So we need to realize that we're constantly in need of being reminded of these truths. The world is going to shove us towards self-centeredness. Take care of yourself. Look out for number one. We need to not neglect the gathering together of the church so that we are reminded 
and encouraged to live in light of the gospel and our calling to give ourselves away, to live in community, encouraging one another to live out these truths. Now, last week we talked about being a conduit of comfort to those around us who are hurting, who are struggling. We see today we're also called to be a conduit of sorts of encouragement. We are to carry, we in sense, you know, remember we talked last week about how we carry the comfort of God to the people around us. Well, today he says we're also carrying the encouragement of God, the encouragement of the gospel into the lives of the people around us. As we conclude the, the series on relationships, we can summarize this entire series by noting that in every stage and area of our life, all the things we looked at, from marriage and parenting, to singleness and divorce, to caring for one another in the midst of brokenness and the struggles that we all face, there's one thing that's true of us if we are a part of God's people. We are never alone. There's never a time that we are alone in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our successes, in the midst of our triumphs and joys and struggles and depressions. There's, there's never a time that we are alone, for God has given us when he's called us to himself, he's called us to community. He's called us to, to this. He's provided a place and a people for us to share with one another the most important things in our life, our faith, our hope, our joy, our struggles, and to encourage one another to hold fast to our confession, even when, or maybe especially when, it feels like we are all alone and our world is caving in on us. You know, we feel like the psalmist in the psalm we read earlier that we're alone, that God is out there, but he's not paying attention. And we're reminded as being a part of a community, we're able to come along one another, put our arms around each other and say, can I walk with you towards faith, towards the cross, towards belief, towards loving and serving others? Can we do these things together? So we're called to be conduits of comfort and encouragement in these moments, in every moment. We are the body of Christ, never separated from each other. If you look at your bulletin, back at the very beginning of our worship service, there's always a quote there. Uh, this quote is from uh, two English guys, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. They wrote a book on church health and church growth called Total Church. And, and here's what he said. Let me we'll kind of finish uh, with this this morning. Here's what they say. So they say, by becoming a Christian, I belong to God. And I belong to my brothers and sisters. It's not that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church. My being in Christ means being in Christ with those others who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. What do we learn today? What do we learn throughout this whole series? One, all of our relationships are broken in this, on this earth. They're all affected by the fall. They're all affected by sin. We, because of that, tend to do one of two things. We withdraw from community, or we abuse the community that we're in by demanding too much of it, I think. We either try to take, 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 or we reject, or we remove ourselves completely and don't get any benefits from it. We're the right calling is to be a part of community, seeking to serve and love those around us, while at the same time receiving the love and encouragement of those around us. So this isn't a call just to be constant givers, but to never be only receivers. To not be, to not be a leech on the community, but at the same time, 
not refusing to accept the gifts of those around us. God has gifted us to love and serve one another. And so we're to seek who to serve and love. And at the same time, when others see a need that we have, we're not to say, wait, I'm okay, great, no, no, not me. We're to actually let people love and serve us. There's a give and a take. Some of us don't want to serve others. Some of us don't want to receive service, love. We're called to both. That's the way community works. God's called us to live and do life together. It's part of the body of Christ. Remember where Paul says that if the, if the arm quits being an arm and the leg quits being a leg and the nose quits being... He doesn't go into all that, but you know the point. He said, it's impossible to serve as a complete body. Guys, we need each other. All these relationships that we've talked about, we've talked about brokenness every week. From marriage and parenting and the struggles that we have there to divorce and singleness and the longings and, and hardships and hurts that come and those things and the ending of those relationships even to the brokenness in our community and the struggles that we have. Some of us long to be faithful to Christ and our sin just draws us consistently away and away and away to something that seems better and we have to fight just to believe and say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We need help. We need help. We need people to come along beside us and consider how to stir us on to love and good deeds. In the midst of a world that tells us, look out for yourself, run away from community. Run away from giving yourself away. Run away from sacrifice. God calls us deeper. He says to love is to lay your life down for your brothers. God calls us to live sacrificially, and He is the model for that. He has given His Son that we might have life life that we share with God in thankfulness and gratefulness, knowing that everything good thing comes from Him, and life that we share with each other, knowing that we are all dependent upon each other for health and for joy, for growth. God wants us to live as community. Let me pray for us to that end. Father in heaven, thank You for being our God. God, we recognize that You designed us for community. But yet in a fallen world, in so many ways, we try to reject that, move away from that. So God, would you change our hearts to help us not to be self-sufficient, but to recognize that you meet our needs through the gifts that you've given other people. So help us to be aware of the people around us and the needs that they have and the gifts that we have that we can share. But also help us to be excellent in receiving the gifts of others. That they might exercise their gifts, even in serving and loving us. And so God, humble us that we might be willing to serve others might be willing to be served because you have loved us perfectly. Because you have given your son to serve us to the greatest degree by laying down his life that we might have life forever. Help us to do that with one another. To love each other well. To embrace the love of Christ together. To encourage one another towards faithfulness together. To help one another in our walks together. To do life together. And then to invite others to come and join this community to be loved on by us uh, because you have first loved us. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.